Um, okay, so we've been in a series um, in the book of Matthew, and we are in the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7, and we're slowing down, and we're going to take our time uh, kind of through this section. Uh, today is part 14 of the whole series, uh, but we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for, for a while, uh, through the rest of the summer, and then a little break, and then in this, the fall, uh, we'll be back uh, in, the, in the Sermon on the Mount as well. Um, and so we've, we've been walking our way through, and today we're going to look at the meek. And so as we have done in the weeks previous, we're going to do a quick little um, uh, uh, re- recap uh, so we know where we're at. So if you have your Bible and it's open to Matthew chapter 5, um, you, you might have subtitles in, in your Bible. And if you do, at least in my Bible, after verse 1, the subtitle says the Beatitudes. And the word beatitude is a word that is not very common, commonly used in our current vocabulary. Um, so where did we get that word? Well, that word is a, a beatitude is from the Latin word beatus. And the Latin word beatus is trying to translate the Greek word. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. Uh, the Greek word makarios. And if you'll notice in verse 3, 4, 5, all the way down, uh, those verses all start with the word, in, in my version, they all start with the word blessed. That is the Greek word makarios, that when, it, when the Bible was translated into Latin, it became the Latin word beatus. And then the Latin word beatus, for a lot of versions, is translated into the word blessed. And so if you wonder where we got beatitude, uh, beatitude is the Latin version of the Greek word that we often re- translate in English as blessed. Uh, over the course of this series, we've suggested that maybe uh, the best English word could be flourish. Uh, flourishing instead of instead of blessed. And, and let me show you what I mean. Uh, all that we just said doesn't tell you actually what a beatitude is. Um, so what is a beatitude? Well, they are a description of the good life from Jesus's perspective. So, you know, in, in the first verse of chapter five, uh, Jesus goes up and sits down. He goes up on a mountain and sits down. And that's the behavior of an authoritative teacher. And so he has taken the position of a teacher, and now he's going to give everybody his instruction. And, you know, the the idea is everybody, every great teacher has their pitch. Every great teacher has their pitch of what the good life is. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you mine. And so uh, confusion that has, you know, there's kind of been some confusion over what Jesus is doing right here. Um, And and, and we've said that these are not divine blessings that are bestowed upon you. Uh, They are not commands. But as one writer put, uh, they are congratulatory descriptions of people in a state of well-being. And we're invited into that too. Uh, So I think the favorite way that I've started to try to describe it is if you could just imagine Jesus walking through a meadow and there's some trees uh, scattered throughout the meadow and he sees a tree with like bright green leaves and juicy fruit and Jesus points at that tree and says, that tree is flourishing. That's a flourishing tree. It's like that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus looks at, at, at the individual situations of people and how they're trying to navigate the, the world, and he says, flourishing are the poor in spirit. Flourishing are the mourners. Flourishing are the meek. Um, and it feels like an upside-down statement, uh, but Jesus' kingdom is upside-down. And the way that Jesus sees things is often quite a bit different uh, than the way we see things. So when we walk through the poor in spirit— we saw that uh, what that means is that you recognize, so you say, what is it to be poor in spirit? It means that you recognize that the deepest problems of your life and of the world are bigger than you. Uh, What about the mourners? That's what we spent our time on last week. 
It means those who lament what is broken. It actually means that Jesus says there's something incredibly rich. There's actually something flourishing about those of you who look at the world and see that this is not how it's supposed to be. The world's not supposed to be like this. And when the world's broken and it breaks your heart and you're willing to admit that and you're willing to lean into that, Jesus actually says that, that that's, that's, a flourishing, that's a flourishing person. Well, then he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So who are the meek? Well, uh, let's start off with what, what meekness actually is. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, that's what Jesus says. Blessed are the meek. So the subject of meekness is uh, kind of an easy one to, to misunderstand. Uh, part of it would be that our, na- our kind of our natural, our normal thoughts, and I'm not trying to predict where your head's going, but our natural thoughts often when we hear the word meek are, are, would actually lead us to say something like, uh, Jesus would say, blessed are the meek for they shall be comforted. Like, in, a, in other words, the, the meek have it so hard. They're, they're so bad off. They have so much fear, so much anxiety. They need help. They, they need to be comforted. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say that they need comfort. He says they're going to inherit the earth. And so Jesus is coming at this subject of meekness maybe a little bit differently than our natural bent would be. Uh, the Greek word for meek, uh, praeus, is, how it's, uh, is, is the Greek word. Um, it's a unique word. It's only used four times in the entire New Testament. Uh, three of those times are by Matthew. And so it's, it's not a super common word, but it means gentle, humble, considerate. That, that's the definition of this, again, relatively unique word. Uh, commentators over the course of time have tried to explain what is meant when Jesus said, blessed are the meek. And some commentators uh, understand this word to actually be describing people who are of low status, who are kind of the lowest rank, the lowest rank in society, especially in the Greco-Roman world. Uh, in other words, commentators, some commentators don't see this as a virtue thing or as a character description. Uh, they see it as a social or an economic descriptor. And there are some things that I like about it. There are, I think there's actually some reasons I see why those commentators landed there. But, but the problem with that understanding is that, I just told you, Matthew uses this word three times. The first time is right here, where Jesus himself is using the word. But the next two times are both times where Jesus is being described. Jesus is being described as, as meek. And when you think about who Jesus was, you know, Jesus was certainly not wealthy. I mean, it's not that Jesus was wealthy, but he was a trained carpenter, and he was not the lowest rank in the Greco-Roman society. So I think uh, the commentators that, that, that have a little bit of a different view here, I think the better standing, uh, understanding is that to see this as a virtue or a character thing, that actually what Jesus is pointing to is something about the character that he says is flourishing. It's something not, not specifically about their circumstances. It's more about who, who they are that Jesus is, is celebrating, that he's actually recognizing the nature of how they're navigating the world, whether they're rich or they're poor, whether they're weak or they're strong, whether they're a slave or they're free. In other words, meekness reaches into all of those categories. Meekness is available 
to people in every one of those categories. You don't have to be on the lowest rung of society to be a meek person. You don't have to be poor. Meekness is actually available. Flourishing are the gentle. Flourishing are the humble. Flourishing are the meek. The fundamental marker of the meek is not their net worth or their competency. It's how they respond to the people and circumstances around them. Uh, The meek person is a person who is not overly impressed with themselves. That's a good way to think about the meek person, is that this idea of like being self-concerned or self-focused or or self-absorbed, that is is not how you would experience them in the world. Uh, For our English language, it might be best to say that the meek means those who are humble. And over the years, we have been helped many, many times by C.S. Lewis, and especially C.S. Lewis in his book, one of his most popular books, uh, Mere Christianity. And uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says that real humility is not thinking more of yourself, nor is it thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. That's the nature of humility. You're not the center of the universe. You're not the sun that everybody orbits around. You're not the, 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 the superstar that everyone should, should bow down to. You actually have this reality or this recognition that you are thinking about yourself less. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to contrast things. So maybe we could ask, what then is, is pride? You know, in that book, Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis has a whole chapter on pride. And uh, if you've read the book, then you know what I'm talking about. But it's, 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 a, it's a penetrating, hard chapter uh, to read. Um, but if we were to ask the question of like, what is pride? Uh, C.S. Lewis would kind of say this. He, he would say that the essence of pride is self-concern. It's essentially competitive. That you're always looking down on people. Um, that there's this sense in which it's like you're comparing yourself to what everybody else is doing, that there's always a pecking order. There's always a ladder to climb. There's always a way in which I'm better than you or I'm doing better than you or what, I'm, you know, what, what, what I accomplished is more than what you accomplished or you, when you have to face the reality that someone actually, they beat you or they did better than you. In other words, all of life is kind of seen as winning and losing. The, the essence of pride is self-concern. But the essence of meekness is self-forgetfulness. If pride is essentially competitive, meekness is essentially cooperative. Meekness is, is, uh, is approaching the world where you're looking out. You, you actually have other people in mind. You're, you're, you're thinking about what's going on in the lives of others. You're not just self-consumed. Now, it doesn't mean that you think that you're the worst thing that's ever happened. Uh, do, do you remember the, the, the two greatest commandments? Je- Jesus is asked, what's the great commandment? And Jesus responds with two. And he says the, the first command, great commandment is to love the Lord your God. The second's like it, and it's to love your neighbor as yourself. And so it's not to treat yourself terribly or to, to always be down on yourself. That's not meekness. Meekness is just navigating the world in a way where it's looking out. 
It's like actually thinking about other people too. Maybe you could describe it as like uh, asking questions that, that, are, that are in the line of, how do we make the tide rise, you know, the tide go, so all boats rise. How do we make this work so that everybody gets benefit? What's the way to navigate this to where other people are helped too? Uh, meekness has this sense of self-forgetfulness, uh, a willingness to actually not have yourself be the star player. The proud person is focused on themselves. The meek have an eye towards others. Uh, the proud use their resources uh, with themselves in mind. The meek use their resources with others uh, in mind. So, are you proud? You know, uh, C.S. Lewis, in, in that chapter, he says, you know, like, that, that, that's a hard question to answer. Are, are, are you proud? Because one of the problems with pride, uh, C.S. Lewis in that chapter, he actually says that he doesn't know very many people that aren't Christians who are willing to admit that they're proud. And one of the reasons why C.S. Lewis experienced that, you know, C.S. Lewis came to faith later in life. And when he came to faith, all of these gospel realities started flooding into his world. And later on, when he wrote Mere Christianity, he has this recognition where it's like, I, I don't know a whole lot of people who aren't Christians who admit to being proud. One of the reasons for that is this. Pride is really hard to see because pride blinds you. That's one of pride's greatest works is that pride never lets you see pride. You, you, you justify those opinions. You justify making sure you get yours. You justify measuring yourself against other people. Pride blinds. And so we often are in need of something outside of us to reveal our pride to us. And C.S. Lewis is suggesting that that's absolutely true. We need something outside of us to show us our pride. But if you were going to try to wrestle with this, like, are you proud? Or maybe the better question would be is, how proud are you? Um, C.S. Lewis suggests that you could ask yourself this. How much do proud people annoy you? And his, his suggestion is that the more they annoy you, the more proud you are. Because pride is essentially competitive. And often what's happening when we experience a proud person and they're out there tooting their own horn, patting themselves on the back, is what we're revealing is that we really want our horn to be tooted. We really want ourselves to be patted on the back. Uh, this, this subject of pride, I, I understand if it feels personal. I understand if it's hard, uh, hard to navigate. But just, can I just say, at the first service, my wife and children were sitting in the front row. So to have the audacity to get up and talk about humility and pride in front of your immediate family is complicated. So if you're feeling it, I, I, I felt it uh, all, all morning. Uh, but are you proud? I mean, because in some ways, the reason why that's a good question is because are you meek? It's, it's, the, it's the same dynamics. Are, are you meek? Boy, th those are complicated questions to answer. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Flourishing are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Flourishing are the humble. Flourishing are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, how do we find meekness? Because let's be honest, it doesn't sound right that the meek are going to inherit the earth. 
I mean, if you look around, especially over the last handful of years, it does not appear that the meek are winning. It appears that the brash are winning, that the selfish are winning, that the, the self-promoters, that the aggressive, that the powerful, that they, they seem to be the ones who, who are winning. And yet Jesus is saying, no, no, I'm telling you the good life. I'm telling you the meek, are, are, that's, that's the good life. Flourishing are the meek. Well, how do we find it? How do we find this meekness? Well, we look, we look to Jesus. Have you noticed when you've read the Gospels that Jesus is occasionally revealing the truth about who he really is? Jesus occasionally says things like, um, I have the power to forgive sins. Um, Jesus occasionally says things like, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus occasionally makes those comments. But you know what is far more common? Is Jesus hanging out with the lowest levels of society. It's Jesus hanging out with sinners. It's Jesus hanging out with outcasts. It's Jesus hanging out with the sick. You see Jesus asking questions, having a level of curiosity about other people and what's going on in their life. You see him marked by crying. You know, we talked about this last week, but he was known, one of his nicknames was the man of sorrows. And so, yes, occasionally Jesus is revealing these incredible grand realities that he is God in the flesh, that he can forgive sins, that he is, uh, before Abraham was, he was. But far more often, we see him living life with the lowest people, with the level of outcast, asking questions, crying. I find that to be so interesting. Well, one commentator put it this way. Jesus is always living like he's nothing, but he knows he's not. See, that's the exact opposite of the world's understanding of humility or meekness. In fact, that's the opposite of most of our understanding of humility and meekness. You know, most of us feel inferior, and then we act superior to compensate for it. You know what I'm talking about? The, 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 the imposter syndrome... The fact that, man, like, you got the job, but should you really have gotten the job? Like, do they really want me making these decisions about these things? Like, I'm, I'm in the room for this meeting, but don't call on me because I really don't know what to say. I don't really know what's going on. And the typical response to that inferiority is to act superior. It's to try to overcompensate. It's to try to perform, fake it till you make it, self-promotion. Think of all that comparing of yourself to other people in the room, at your workplace, in your hobbies. All of this sense of like you feel inferior and you act superior. And yet Jesus Christ, think about it this way. Jesus Christ knew he was superior. He was God in the flesh. He knew he was superior, and yet he lives like he's inferior. He puts all of his power and all of his glory under the interests of other people. He's like aiming it all at them all the time. He has an eye towards the other. He's curious about them. He wants to help them. He wants to speak into their life. He sees them. All of these incredible realities. And yet he's God in the flesh. He was superior and lives like he's inferior. 
Remember that definition a second ago that humility is not thinking more of yourself nor is it thinking less of yourself? Humility is thinking of yourself less. It's not having you as in focus all the time. You know, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul gives us this little snapshot and he says, let me tell you about the character of Jesus. And one of the things that he points to is he, say, he says, don't count yourself more significant than, than others. He actually he says it the other way. He says, count others more significant than yourself. Like the way you navigate the world is regardless of your strength level, regardless of your net worth, regardless of your IQ, you walk around and you treat other people as more significant than you. Where did that idea come from? Paul says it came from Jesus. Like Jesus is the one who put this in front of us. Jesus is the one who models this. He lays before us an example of someone who is free from self-consciousness. They are free from being self-absorbed. Look, if you understand humility as utter freedom from self-consciousness, utter freedom from needing to, to feed your ego in a nonstop way, do you know what that means? It means that you can get rid of pride and fear at the exact same time. Or, or, or to say it positively, you can be simultaneously humble and confident. And you say, how? Like, I know people who are humble, but like a lot of them should be humble. Like they stink. You know, they, they're, they're, they're no good at their job. Like why, why, you know, they, they have every reason to be humble, you know, but they don't have any confidence. Or then there's other people and it's like, you know, like, well, if you got it, flaunt it. You know, if it's true, it ain't boasting. And they, they have all the confidence, but why should they be humble? And yet along comes this idea of humility and confidence at the exact same time. Listen, here's how it can happen. It can happen through, through the message of the gospel. Tim Keller wrote this, the gospel leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. Why is that true? Look, when you understand the scandal of the gospel, the fact that Jesus came to earth to rescue you from sin by sheer grace, you didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. He did it just because he loves you. That the sin in your life, the Bible says, has a consequence, and that consequence is death, which is, is separation, separation from God. And there is no human solution. Everything about us deserves to be separated from God. And yet Jesus Christ came, and this is why it's a scandal. He who was perfectly righteous, became sin for us so that we could actually be brought to God. Why did he do it? Because you're so awesome? Because I'm so awesome? Because we've done so many good deeds? No, he did it just because he loves us. See, when you understand the scandal of the gospel like that, it fills you with humility. It reminds, that you, it reminds you you never earned a thing, that everything you have is a gift you realize that there is literally nothing you could do to get God to love you more. He loves you just because he loves you. And that will make you more honest, more curious, more open to correction, more gentle. But the gospel does even more. When you understand the scandal of the gospel, it also fills you with confidence. 
you don't have to be afraid. You know, uh, you, you know you are eternally loved by the one who knows every part of you. You realize that there's literally nothing you could do to get God to love you less. So, so think about this. If the message of the gospel is all your good deeds, do all the good stuff you can do, and no matter how many good deeds you do, you can't get God to love you more. It's not possible. Boy, that's humbling. Because I want to think all my good deeds are going to get some brownie points. I want to think all these awesome things I've done for God, it's going to get me a better mansion, you know, in the kingdom. And the Bible says, no, no, you are loved more than you could imagine. And there's actually no grade up. There's no way to go up from there. And so all of your efforts and all of your works, it doesn't improve. That's humbling. That's humbling. But guess what gives confidence? What gives confidence is when you realize that there's nothing you could ever do to make God love you less. That there's nothing you could do. In the book of Romans, we are told that we are held in the hand of God and nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ. And that gives you this incredible level of confidence as you navigate the world and you realize that he loves you just because he loves you. And that makes you anti-fragile. It makes you rooted. It makes you non-anxious. You can endure the hard times because you have been filled with the love that only the God of the universe can offer. Do you see this? This scandal is that Jesus comes in and he sees your resume. And whether you think it or not, your life resume is a train wreck. And Jesus comes in and Jesus says, here's what I'll do. I'll swap my resume with your resume. I'll swap it. You, you can have my resume. And when you make that swap, when you trust Jesus and he gives you his righteousness, he takes from you your sin and he gives you his righteousness. Theologically, that is called double imputation. That Jesus takes one thing, that's the first imputation, that, the, that our sins are imputed onto Christ, imputed onto Christ. And then Christ imputes his righteousness onto us. So it creates both this sense of humility and this sense of confidence at the exact same time. Now, it wouldn't be surprising to me if over the course of this sermon, there were a time or two where you may have had the thought, this, is, this makes me nervous. Because if meekness is thinking of myself less, then like who is going to think of me? If I don't think about me, you know, if I don't make sure I get mine, then nobody's going to care. If I don't worry about me, who's going to worry about me? Well, listen to this. See, the gospel diminishes your preoccupation with yourself because it declares that you, with all of your sins and failures, with all of your bumps and bruises, are loved more than you can imagine. Look, meekness is not really something that you can do by yourself. Meekness is much more something that is seen in relationship. And this is why our relationships can show us so much. We like to measure ourselves against other people. We love having a pecking order. We love thinking of ourselves a few levels above other people, a few steps further up than you. My net worth is better than their net worth. My credentials are better than their credentials. Uh, I'm, more, I'm better at sharing the gospel than they are. I cuss less than they do. I drink less than they do. My kids are more spiritual than their kids. And the list is endless. 
But Jesus offers a better way. But what Jesus has to say is that the pressure is off. You don't have to pose anymore. That's what the gospel is telling you. There are no stairs to climb in the gospel. There's no competitions to win. There's no promotions to fight for. You know, I told you that there was one time, there were three uses of the word meek in Matthew, and then there was one more time. It's not in Matthew. It's in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. And this is, what Peter, this is what Peter says when he uses that word. He says, Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, that's the word, and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter here, is, it's a little bit of a complicated passage, but he's talking about women who are really, really dressing up. Do, like kind of overdoing it with their appearance to try to garner uh, some level of attention. And what Peter says in verse 4, listen to it again, like, in other words, there's all kinds of ways to try to get your significance and your value externally. But Peter says this, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. What's the imperishable beauty? Gentleness, meekness, humility. Peter says there's all kinds of ways you can try to get this stuff externally, but you know what God wants to do? God wants to cultivate an inner life that is, that's imperishable. And in God's sight, boy, oh boy, it is very precious. You know, there's an illustration that I've used a few times over the years, but just it, it, it fits well here. If you if, imagine yourself, if you had children, my, my kids have gotten, gotten older now, but when my kids were young, this wasn't an uncommon thing to happen. You, you come home from work and, you know, you go sit in a chair and one of your little kids comes up to you with, their, with a piece of paper and they've colored a picture for you. And they say, uh, Daddy, I, I, I colored this picture for you. And you look at it and you're like, oh, honey, that's so beautiful. You did such a great job. And then they say, do you love me now? And you say, oh, honey, I, yeah, I, I love you whether, you whether you colored the picture or not. Like, yes, I love you. It's, you're great. It's, it's so good to be home. Good to be with you. Well, the next day you come home from work and you sit down in the chair and your child comes over to you and they bring their piece of paper and they've colored a new picture and they climb up in your lap and they say, daddy, I, I made this picture for you. And you say, oh, that's beautiful, honey. And they say, do you love me now? How many days would that need to happen before you say, you misunderstand something about the relationship between me and you? And yet, how many of us are doing that with the God of heaven? How many of us are treating this like a daily tryout? How many of us view the love of God towards us in some sort of way where it's incredibly fragile, where he's, you know, it, 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 we're, just, we're just hoping maybe he loves us. Look, if you believe that, then you are going to be self-consumed. It is going to take all of your energy to try to impress the God of heaven. And I know because I lived my life this way for a long time. You have no margin for anything else. You have no energy left for anything else 
because you're the center of your world and you're trying to impress the God of heaven and you can't do it. But if you think you can, it's a treadmill and it just keeps going faster and faster. Jesus offers a better way. Listen to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28, 29, and 30. This is another place where the, this word for meek shows up. This is it in ESV. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Where he said that he's gentle and lowly, that word gentle is that same word for meek. Listen to that same passage from a different version. This is the, the message. Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You see what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, if you will give up and follow me, if you will give up all your self-salvation projects, all these attempts to perform, and just follow me, you're going to find rest there and you are going to find life there. You know, in multiple places, in Isaiah, in James, in 1 Peter, we are told crystal clear that you know what God does with the humble? He lifts them up. God lifts up the humble. So many of us spend our whole lives trying not to be humble, trying not to be meek. We think it looks like weakness. We think it, it's going to set us up for failure. And yet God says he lifts up the humble. Matthew says, quoting Jesus, they'll inherit the earth. See, the pressure's off. You don't have to take yourself so seriously. You really don't have to be offended by every slight. One of the things that I actually think that the people of God could lead the way in is stuff rolling off your back. You know, like water off a duck's back. Man, I think we could do so much better at that. We don't have to take offense with every little slight that comes our way. We also don't have to be in endless competition. There are no stairs in the gospel. A better way to think about it is this. We are all seated on the living room floor at the feet of the master, learning together. People who have found this, they find confidence, they're settled. And you know what that does? It frees you from not making, it frees you from making everything all about yourself. You can actually stop thinking about yourself. If you go to Jesus, actually listen to what he's saying, believe it, then the pressure really will come off. The striving, the performing, the self-promotion, the self-protection, the self-concern, they really can't be left behind. The invitation is to come to him. And one of the ways that we do that is we come to this table and we eat this bread and we drink this cup and we are, we are reminded and we are nourished. 
We are, we are reminded of the person and work of Jesus on our behalf that he really did give his whole life. His body was broken and his blood was spilled so that we could be brought to God, so that we could be reconciled to the God who gives life and rest. And the invitation is, come. If our servants will please come, let's pray. You know, before I pray, just real quick, an invitation for you during communion time might be to ask forgiveness. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is important to remember is that uh, the psalmist had to do this. He said, God, I don't know me. I'm my least accurate critic. Would you help me see me? And so maybe uh, as you have time before communion, ask the Spirit to give you eyes to see. Pride likes to blind. Ask for forgiveness for making yourself the center of the universe. I know all about it. I, I tend to do it all the time. Ask, God, ask for God's forgiveness and then receive his love. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, this text. Thank you for a, another uh, upside-down invitation. Flourishing are the meek. God, it's easy for us to, to think of the meek as, as weak or as broken or as failures. But God, the invitation from you is to see, that not, uh, to, to see it as a, a, a way of navigating the world as a heart attitude that actually has others in mind. We thank you for the example of Jesus, but we also thank you that he's way more than an example. We thank you that he's actually the one who rescues us, that he actually came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, that he broke his body and spilled his blood so that we could be brought uh, back into right relationship with our one true Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.